we're about to start, and my wife hightails it to the back. Bye. She's like, I already heard this. I don't want to hear it again. Feeling the love. All right. Turn with me. If you've got a Bible right in front, turn with me to John chapter 21. It's crazy, but we have reached the end of John's gospel, which is, is kind of bittersweet. I'm excited for what we get to learn today, but at the same time, I'm kind of sad that it's coming to an end. Um, last week, we took a look at the most powerful miracle ever recorded, recorded by an eyewitness, a guy named John, who was one of Jesus's disciples, speaking directly to what he saw in the risen Jesus. And Jesus's resurrection from the dead was a powerful declaration that he was ultimately who he claimed to be, namely the son of God, God in human flesh, and the one to whom God used to pay once and for all the penalty of our sin and our death so that we do not need to remain separated from God because of the choices that we've made. He is a holy God, but because of what Jesus did, we are no longer called sinners. We're called saints, which is nothing more than a saved sinner, somebody whose sins are not held against them. We are no longer called outcasts. We're called sons and daughters of the living God. And my goodness, what a powerful thing. And, and we actually spent quite a bit of time actually looking at some of the historical evidence to support the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead, because that is a massive question that many skeptics ask. Well, if did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if he did, oh my goodness. But if he didn't, then as Paul said, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else because we placed our faith in something that is not true. And so we spent a considerable amount of time last week actually looking at evidence, not just from the Bible, but historically to support the fact that he did. And if you were not here for that, I would encourage you either to grab a CD on the back table or you can go on, on to the website at lighthousecommunity.com and you can listen to that or any of the messages we've ever given here. They're all up there for free. Okay, so John chapter 21. Actually, I'm going to look at the last two verses of John chapter 20 just for a moment. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, these signs, these miracles, these things that Jesus did are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, this sounds to me like a beautiful, perfect wrap up to John's gospel. And in fact, some theologians have said, well, wait a minute. It sounds like John kind of planned to end the gospel here. So perhaps John 21 doesn't really belong. Maybe it was added later on. But if we actually look at, if we were to go back and look at every single one of the complete manuscripts that we have of the gospel of John, and we have a number of them, not a single one of them is missing John chapter 21, which is strong evidence that it was always intended to be included. But on top of that, we also have textual evidence. A lot of uh, scholars will go in and go, okay, well, do the words change? Oftentimes when something is kind of inserted, the language will change. And the reality is the language stays very much the same. Not only that, but the themes that are being dealt with in John chapter 21 stays consistent with the rest of John's gospel which is strong evidence that John chapter 21 was always intended to be a part of his gospel. It may have been that he kind of wrapped it up and goes, wait, one more thing I want to add. And this is almost like an epilogue. And in fact, as we get into this, you're going to see that it is a very important epilogue, at least for one of Jesus' disciples in particular. 
Okay, so let's read all the way through John chapter 21, and then we're going to come back and we'll look at some points in it. So afterward, after Jesus rose from the dead, after he showed himself first to Mary Magdalene, then to the disciples in the upper room, and then later, a week later, he showed himself yet again because there's this guy, Thomas, who's going, unless I actually see the nail holes and get to put my fingers in his side, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus is like, okay. So after this, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other disciples were there. I'm going to go out and fish, Simon Peter told them. And Simon Peter tends to be, throughout, we, we see him to be this natural leader, and the disciples often follow him. And so the rest of them go, well, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, hey, friends, have you guys caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, let me just tell you how ridiculous this statement is. Back in that day, this is how they would fish. They would have this long net that they would kind of drag out and they would make a big circle. And then they would connect that thing and tighten it up a little bit so it would take all the fish in that area, corral them, and pull them together. Then they would have these throw nets that they would throw over the top, and it had lead sinkers that would sink down, and they would cinch it closed, and that's how they would catch the fish. What he's suggesting is, hey, take that throw net and throw it on the other side of the boat because you're going to catch lots of fish. And it makes no sense because they don't even have a net out there to corral the fish, and yet they did it. And when they did it, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we know is John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And at this, Simon Peter, when he heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he was probably out there fishing in kind of like some breeches or a loincloth or something. When he heard it's the Lord, he put his clothes on, he put his shirt on and jumped in the water because apparently the hundred yards that they were from shore was going to take them too long for them to row in. He needs to be there now. So he jumped in the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, only about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it some bread. And Jesus said, well, bring some of the fish you guys caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, let's have some breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. I find that interesting that they're like, well, why would they need to ask him who he is? But we also saw in John chapter 20 that when Mary Magdalene first saw Jesus, she didn't fully recognize him at first either until he spoke to her, which gives me some indication that perhaps Jesus' resurrected body looks slightly different than before. Now, that is complete conjecture. Please don't take my word for it. But it's just interesting that there's just something like, who is that? Verse 13, Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Interesting, he doesn't call him by the name he gave him, Peter. He calls him by his old name, Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, well, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Jesus said, well, then take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, amen, amen. And every time that Jesus says, very truly, or amen, amen, it is the way that he highlights something he doesn't want the people he's talking to to miss. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? That's how we know, by the way, that the one whom Jesus loved is actually John, because we know it was John who did that leaning back there. And when Peter saw him, he said, well, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Well, because of this, rumors spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't actually say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. That's how we know that John is the author of this gospel from that verse. This is the disciple who testifies and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. All of a sudden we get a picture of another crowd of people, probably John's disciples, whom he has shared the gospel with, who have come to believe in him, who have been there. Maybe one of them was actually the scribe. We know that a lot of times when somebody was writing down a gospel or a letter or something, they would articulate it and there would be a scribe called an amanuensis who would write it down. Possibly that's who's writing, hey, we know his testimony is true. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. But if every one of them were written down, I suppose that not even the whole world would have enough room for the books that would be written. So let's go back through this for just a moment. We see a picture of a number of the disciples, not all of them, but a number of them after they have seen the risen Lord, after they've interacted with him a couple of times, a few of them kind of get tired of waiting in Jerusalem, particularly because it's a bit of a hostile territory right now. And so some of them go, hey, let's go back up to Galilee where we're from and just kind of hang out there for a bit. So they head up to Galilee, and once they get there, Peter goes, hey, let's go fishing. And so a bunch of them go, hey, yeah, we'll join you in that. And they, they go back doing what they had originally done. This is what Jesus had called them out of, for Peter, James, and John at least. Are you guys able to see me up there if I stand down here? Is this okay? Would you say no, even if you couldn't? <laughs> ah, doggone. Okay, I'm going to stand up here. Is that better? Whatever. Sorry. So... So they go back to fishing and they have a frustrating night. For any of you guys who have ever gone out on one of those overnight fishing boats, nighttime is the time to fish. At least they have found that they were being able to catch. So they tended to go fishing at nighttime. They're out an entire night. They don't catch a single thing. They're a little bit dejected. Any of you guys who have ever gone fishing and not caught a single thing, you know, you get frustrated, especially when you're in a bunch of a group with a bunch of guys. There's nothing to lie about. Doggone it. I almost caught one. Whatever. Half of this stuff is just to entertain myself. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, all of a sudden they hear from shore. Hey, you guys catch anything? No. 
Well, throw the net on the other side. Now, interestingly, this harkens back to something at the very beginning of of Jesus's ministry, right when he first called Peter, James and John. It's not recorded in the Gospel of John. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke. For just a moment, turn back to Luke chapter five with me. And I want to point out that John is the fourth of the Gospels. It was the last one that was written. And John is well aware of all three of the other Gospels that were written. One of his goals in writing was not to just rehash the same territory that had already been covered, but to give some different insights, some different points. And so he did not include everything that had happened, including this story, but it's very pertinent because we read in John chapter 5, on the day that, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gisineret, which is the Sea of Galilee, it's just another name for it, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Well, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. Again, they have finished a night of, sh- of fishing. They're washing their nets. They're kind of wrapping up for the day. Jesus sees the boats, so he went and gotten one, the one belonging to Simon, who would later be named Peter. And he asked him to put out a little bit from the shore. So they pushed off and then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When you speak over water, for those of you who have ever, you know, your voice carries really far. So it almost became like a natural amphitheater. And Jesus began to teach all the people on the shore. Well, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, hey, push out a little bit deeper into the water and put down your nets for a catch. Here is a non-fisherman suggesting to a fisherman who's just spent an entire night fishing and caught nothing Hey, let me teach you how to fish. And it's testament to who Peter was that he actually submitted to that. Simon said, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we'll let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell on his knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be around you. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that was taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything and followed him. So we see at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, this is the first call to his disciples. Hey, come and follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That happened three years earlier. Now they have been through three years of journeying around with him, seeing him heal people, seeing him teach multitudes, seeing him take a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish and feed thousands of people. They've seen him beaten and crucified. And they've seen him raised from the dead. They've seen a ton. Now they're sitting in the boat. They're kind of not really sure what to do, but they're out there fishing. And all of a sudden they hear from the shore, hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they do it again and again. They catch a ton of fish. And at least John is astute enough to pick up on what this is suggesting. And he goes, hey, Peter, it's Jesus. And at that, Peter throws his shirt on, jumps in the water and starts swimming for shore. I like Peter a whole lot. He reminds me of Mike Jones, first off. He is one of my very favorite people. But Peter is one of those all-in kind of people. He just goes with his heart. And you know 
that you never need to question what Peter is feeling because he acts upon his thoughts. Don't, don't think of Mike right now. Think of Peter. I'm not talking about Mike, okay? But you are, you are still all in. I love you. Okay, so here's the thing about Peter. You don't need to wonder what he's thinking. He is acting. And so we see Peter at the very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, you know, um, Jesus, if that's you on the water, tell me to come out because I want to walk on water too. And he gets out of the boat. Or when Jesus is going to wash his feet, what are you doing? You can't wash my feet. That's beneath you. Or what do you mean? That if you don't wash me, then I have no part with you? Well, then wash my whole body. Come on. Or when Jesus is about to be arrested, he's the one who pulls out a sword and starts swinging away. You never have to wonder what Peter's feeling. He is acting on it. And sure enough, in this instance, he's doing the same thing. As soon as he finds out who it is that's on the shore, he's in the water and he's swimming. Now, at least for Peter, there is a bit of a dark side to his impulsiveness, to his willingness to act out. And that is, sometimes he doesn't fully think through. Again, I'm talking about Peter. I'm not talking about Mike right now. He doesn't fully think. This is so distracting now. My goodness, I'm sorry. He doesn't fully think through the ramifications of his choices, at least in how they deal with his convictions. So on the night that Jesus was arrested, he's standing in the courtyard of the high priest. And somebody says, aren't you one of his disciples? His, his natural impulse is self-preservation. And so he goes, no, I don't even know him. I don't know the man. Asked a second time, aren't, don't, aren't you one of his disciples? No, I, I don't even know that man. Weren't you with him? No, I don't know him. He's trying to preserve himself, and in the moment he completely forgets about the fact that he is utterly devoted to Jesus, and he loves him, and he would lay down his life. In fact, just a couple of minutes, a couple of hours before, when they're having dinner, he says, Jesus, even if all the rest of these guys abandon you, I will never abandon you. I will die with you. And he 100% meant it. It's not that he lacks integrity. It's just that he's going with his emotions in the moment. He goes, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Leave me alone. And so Peter jumps in the water and he swims to shore, acting again. He's, John may be the one who notices things, but Peter is the one who acts on them time and again. He gets to shore. He walks up and there is a charcoal fire. And it's interesting that John uses the word charcoal fire because there's only one other place in his entire gospel he ever refers to a charcoal fire. And that's in John chapter 18. When he is in the court of the high priest as Jesus is on trial and it's cold in the, in the courtyard of the high priest and so he's warming himself by a charcoal fire and it's there that he's asked those three times whether he's a disciple of Jesus. And so now he finds himself warming himself over another charcoal fire. And at this point, Jesus asks him some questions. We read, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, we might read that, do you love me more than these fish? Right? Because he's a fisherman. He'd gone back to doing what he had been doing. Or we might read it, do you love me more than you love these other guys around the fire? But probably the best interpretation of this, the one that most scholars have kind of said this is what he probably meant is, Simon, do you really love me more than these other guys? I mean, because you had claimed that you would never abandon me even if the rest of them did. You claimed that you loved me more than anyone. Do you really love me more than these guys? And Peter goes, Jesus, you know that I love you. Well, then feed my sheep. 
Peter, do you really love me? You know that I love you. Then take care of my lambs. Peter, do you really love me? You know that I love you, Jesus. Now what we miss in our English language is that we only have one word for love. Love. And so it sounds like this dialogue going back and forth is just the same word. But in the Greek language, there's actually four words for love. And Peter employs two of them. So I'm just going to talk about two. The first word that we know that he uses is the word phileo. This refers to brotherly love. The kind of love you have for a close, close friend. It's the kind of love that just develops naturally. It's not something that you can say, I'm going to love this person. It just happens naturally from time spent with that person. The other word used is agape. This is a word that is used throughout Scripture. It's probably the most, anytime you see the word love, most of the time the word is agape. And agape is a sacrificial type of love. It is a choice. Whereas phileo is a feeling, agape ties the heart in with it, but it is more of a choice because we are never told to phileo our enemies. You can't, you, you can phileo your friend, you can phileo, you can love your best friend or, or your brother or your sister, but you can't choose to love your enemies in a phileo sort of way. But we are told to agape our enemies, just as we would a friend. And so agape is a is seen as a kind of a higher level of or, or more um, intentional type of love. And so, as we go back to this now, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Are you more devoted to me than these guys? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I view you like my brother. I love you. You're one of my best, best friends. Jesus said, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you choose to love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I, I love you like a brother. Then take care of my sheep. The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you really love me like a brother? And it's this third time that breaks Peter. Because now it harkens back to that night in the courtyard where he denied Jesus three times. It reminds him and it lets him know that Jesus knows about it and is bringing it up again. But also it calls into question whether Jesus even truly trusts that he does love him. And at this point, Peter, who has been so kind of outspoken about his love, is always so willing to declare, I love you more than anything, I'll die with you. At this point, rather than declaring it, he just kind of makes an appeal to Jesus. Jesus, you know everything. You know it all. So you know that I love you. You know that I phileo you. You know that I feel I love you like my best friend. And again, Jesus says, then feed my sheep. I've been thinking a lot about this interaction between Peter and Jesus. I don't want to read too deeply into the use of those terms back and forth because it could just be that, you know, John, who loves to use different terminology, is doing it. But it seems very interesting that Jesus would say, Do you agape me? And Peter goes, Yes, I phileo you. I, I have such a deep, abiding love for you. I don't even choose it, it's just natural and it's here. But I've been thinking about why Jesus would even bring up what Peter did in that courtyard. Because the reality is, 
he's doing two things. On the one hand, he's, he's kind of rehashing what's going on, what happened, and addressing Peter's failing. And on the other hand, he is commissioning him to go feed his sheep. Go act on that. Be a shepherd of the people that I entrust to your care. These new believers who are going to come to believe in me through your testimony. But Jesus could have commissioned him to be a shepherd without ever bringing this up, without ever talking about his failing. And sometimes, I know for myself, when somebody has kind of stumbled and fallen, the last thing I want to do is rub their face in it, bring it up. But Jesus isn't willing to just ignore the elephant in the room. He addresses it head on. He goes right after it in a very intentional sort of way, drawing attention to it. And I've been asking myself, why did he choose to do that? Why was, why was he intentional about doing something that would make Peter uncomfortable, exceedingly uncomfortable? And the reality is, if we step back and look at it, I think he realized that Peter was carrying a backpack full of shame and guilt around on his shoulders. It was there. Peter had, was not going to forget what he had done. He was not going to forget about the fact that he let Jesus down, that he denied him on the very night that he most desperately needed his disciples to stand with him. And this backpack of shame and guilt was going to affect his ability to be a minister one way or the other. And if Jesus had not addressed it, there's a couple of ways that Peter might have responded to a call to feed his sheep. On the one hand, Peter could have been one of those people who said, I am never going to let this happen again. I am never going to let Jesus... I love him so much, and I am so disappointed and disgusted with myself that I will never fail him again. And he could have used that backpack full of shame and guilt to impel him, drive him to do good, to prove his love over the course of the rest of his life. And he might have ministered out of the fear that he would one day let Jesus down again. But think about if he had done that. Think about if he had let the fear of failing again be the motivation for his ministry. It, would have, it doesn't matter how much fruit he might have seen in his ministry, it would suck the life and the joy out of what he did. He would be serving out of legalism, out of, I need to prove myself to him, rather than serving out of the joy that comes with knowing that I have been forgiven of much. And worse yet, Peter, as a leader of the early church, would have infected others with that legalistic, joyless mindset. The gospel would have been characterized by effort rather than grace. That's what Jesus came to do away with, was this pharisaical mindset that we have to earn God's love, that there's some sort of a ladder that we have to climb in order to earn righteousness. The very gospel states that it is by grace we have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast, so that none of us can go, look what I've done. And I suspect that one of the ways that Peter might have responded, had Jesus not actually addressed the elephant in the room, would have been to become a type of modern Pharisee. 
serving out of obligation, trying to prove to Jesus, to others, but most importantly to himself that he wasn't a failure, that he feared that he was. Now, the, uh, another sort of response is kind of the opposite of that one. The other response is Jesus says, if you love me, then feed my sheep. Peter may have focused on his failing and decided that it defined him more than anything else. I failed him. I am a failure. And there's no way he could possibly use somebody who's as much of a failure as I am. And Peter may have pushed himself, disqualified himself from what Jesus was asking him to do. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my people. Peter may have concluded, as I think far too many men and women throughout the history of following Jesus have done, I've fallen too far. I've screwed up too much. I have denied him too greatly for him to ever use me. I am damaged goods. I am rejected. And in so doing, and in concluding that, they've walked away from what Jesus may have wanted to use them. And if Peter had done that, if Peter had responded that way, I'm a failure, I can't be used by him, he would have stolen from the early church one of its most influential personalities. And it would have been a massive loss, not just for that early church, but for us. And I know that all of that is conjecture, okay? I'm totally just going, how might he have responded had Jesus not done this, but the reality is Jesus did address it. Jesus did go right at the elephant in the room and says, listen, Peter, I know you, you feel like you messed up. I know that you denied me. In fact, I told you ahead of time you were going to do it. But I want you to know that that does not define you. That is not your identity. That is not your legacy. And you can still have a part to play. If you really love me, then feed my sheep. Be a shepherd of the people that I place in your care. And then Jesus goes from there to show Peter just how deep his devotion is going to be. In verse 18, he says, Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and they will lead you where you do not want to go. And John includes that Jesus was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. We know from history that Peter was one of the, the giants of the early Christian movement. But ultimately, under the emperor Nero, when Nero began to crack down on people who were outspoken about the gospel message, Peter was killed for his faith. Last week we talked about that being the most powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead and the disciples, the disciples transformed lives are a powerful testimony because I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not willing to die for something I know to be a lie. I'm not going to lay down my life. And Peter would not shut up about his faith in Jesus Christ, so much so that when Nero started saying, I'm going to take out Christians, Peter's like, well, I'm a Christ follower. I do not deny I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do your worst. And so Nero said, okay, you, want you love Jesus so much, you want to follow him, fine. You can follow him in his death as well. You get to be crucified as well. And history tells us that Peter actually did not feel himself worthy to be killed in the same way that Jesus was. And so he asked to be crucified upside down, which I can't even begin to imagine. 
That was the depth of his devotion to Jesus. And what I love, what I love is that Peter, in his youthful exuberance, declares, Jesus, I will never abandon you. I would be willing to follow you even into death. And in the end, he does. I love that about him. He's an all-in kind of person. (laughs) He probably reminds me a lot of myself, too. Um, And then he said this. Jesus says this to Peter. Follow me. Okay? Follow me. Powerful a powerful picture of, of God taking somebody who in their own mind has been disqualified. And he said, no, you have not. There is nothing, nothing you have done that I have not taken care of on the cross. From a sin standpoint, Jesus had already taken care of that on the cross. But from an emotional standpoint, Peter needed to have that elephant addressed. He needed Jesus to take the backpack of shame and guilt off of his shoulders so that it would no longer define him and no longer cripple him from doing the work that Jesus wanted him to do in a way that testified to the transformative way that grace can bring joy even in the midst of brokenness, can bring peace even in the midst of the unknown. I've seen the way that some of you guys have walked through cancer. What the world would say, the end of the world is coming. And you've done so with such joy and poise because you recognize that at the end of the day, regardless of the outcome, that cancer is not going to get the last word. Powerful. And Peter was able to go through his life and ultimately go to his death with his head up and with joy because he knew that he was Jesus' guy. He knew he was a son of God. And he knew that not only he loved Jesus, but that Jesus loved him. And then we come to verse 20. (laughs) And in the midst of Peter being recommissioned by Jesus, he then turns over and he looks over his shoulder and he sees John and goes, well, what about him? Right? And I don't know if this is because Peter's like, well, I really care about him and I hope that he doesn't have to suffer like me. Or if, if Peter's literally like, hey, you've seen this competition going on between Peter and John. I mean, John, just the, the chapter before, goes, hey, Peter and I were running to the tomb. I won. And we got to the tomb. Peter went in. But then I went in. But just so you remember, I won that race. Right? So there's, there's this element of competition between these two guys. And, and, and Peter looks over his shoulder and goes, well, Jesus, what about him? And Jesus just nipped that in the bud immediately. Hold on, Peter. If I wanted him to live to old age until I come back, what does that matter to you? You follow me, Peter. Don't worry about what happens to him. Don't worry what I have in store for him. Just answer the call that I've got for you, Peter. Far too often I feel like in the, in the church, in society, just our natural human tendency is to look around and go, well, what, what are other people dealing with? You know, is my life easier, better, Worse, harder than somebody else's. It is my following Jesus. What is the fruit of my life? Is it producing more fruit than other people? Is Jesus blessing me more than other people? And we look and we compare. And it's almost like we want to try to determine how much Jesus loves us based upon our lives compared to somebody else's. Or we slip into competition trying to somehow prove 
our love, by our devotion, by the things that we do, the amount of time we spend, and we determine our standing hierarchically based upon how we're doing next to other people. And I'll tell you that both within society but also in the church, comparison and competition are like poison to the heart of Jesus in our church. Because it shifts the focus away from God and onto us. It shifts the focus away from the cross and what Jesus has done and onto what we are doing. And it turns grace, turns the gospel into a gospel of works. Here's what I'm doing compared to other people. And I can somehow, I'm in competition for Jesus' love. And the more I do, the more I can earn. And that is a completely human, completely fallen mindset and pastors aren't immune i'll be the first to say it is so easy for us to slip into this kind of thing i get together with another pastor and they go so how's your church and the first inclination of my heart is to start enumerating oh well we got this many people going to the church or you know we got this kind of project going on or we built this many houses down in mexico or something This many people have given their hearts to Jesus, whatever, you know, something to try to prove how great we are or something like that. I got to tell you this week, actually, I was asked a couple of times, how are you doing? And the first thought I had is I am so thankful to be first. I'm so thankful for my family and for my little boys. I'm having so much fun being a daddy and a husband right now. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a community that I just absolutely love. It doesn't matter numbers it doesn't matter building it doesn't matter the fruit although the fruit is exciting i just love i love our community i love our family that we have here but that natural tendency to want to prove ourselves to try to show that god is blessing us based upon the fruit that is being produced that we are somehow successful, that ekes in. And I don't think that God, if I were to stand before him, would go, hey, why weren't you more like the crossing? Why weren't you more like Saddleback? Why weren't you more like fill in the blank? But I do think that he might ask, so what did you do with the talents of the people in your community? What did you do with the resources and the people that I entrusted to your care, how did you love those that I placed under your care? Because it's not about other people. It's about what God has given each and every one of us. I get it. But I don't think I'm alone in here. I think far too often we, we look around at other people and we compare and we compete and we turn grace into things that we have to earn. And I don't think that, and I think Jesus would say to any one of us, hey, listen, stop worrying about your neighbor. Stop worrying about what they have. Stop worrying about how they look. Stop worrying about how you compare. Stop trying to prove yourself and rest in the knowledge that you are my son. You are my daughter, created in my image, endowed with gifts and talents that I have given to you specifically because I've got a plan for you. So don't worry about them. I didn't make you them. I made you you. So be you. And rest in me so that you can be the very best you. And ultimately so that I get the glory. 
So don't worry about other people. Follow me. Lean on me. And let's do this together. Now, one last thought as, as the worship team comes up. In this chapter, Peter is not the given, he's not cast in the best light. I mean, in the very last chapter of John's gospel, we see Peter's biggest mistake, at least the one that we know about, kind of put up on the billboard. We also see that after Peter has been reinstated, he's still kind of looking over his shoulder going, well, what about this guy, right? So not great, but there is one thing about Peter that at least for me just shines through and I just go, my goodness, it is such a wonderful part of his personality and that is Peter loves Jesus more than anything. And when Peter's on the boat and he hears it's Jesus on the shore, he doesn't think for a moment about the guilt and shame he's carrying around because his love for Jesus is far stronger than his shame. And so without hesitation, he jumps in the water and swims for it because he, doesn't, he can't think of anywhere he would rather be than with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, when I've hurt somebody, when I've screwed up, my natural tendency is avoidance. Just maybe some time will heal this a little bit. Maybe it'll get easier and we can address this at another point. My natural tendency is to kind of step back because I'm afraid of the awkward conversation. I'm afraid of that discomfort of having to go, I screwed up and I'm so sorry I've hurt you and this is so messy and I don't know how we're going to put it back together, but I'm sorry. If I do move towards people, I tend to move towards them like a dog with my tail between my legs, right? And Peter doesn't do that. Peter does just the opposite. Rather than running from Jesus, he runs to him because he can't think of anywhere he'd rather be. And so this morning, if there's anything that we take out of this this morning, is may we be more like Peter in our love for Jesus. Maybe we be more like Peter in the way that we run to him, even when we are aware, when we come face to face with our brokenness. And every single one of us has, every single one of us will. Time and again, come face to face with the fact that we have blown it. We've stumbled, we've fallen. We are desperately in need of a Savior. I'm the first to stand up here and say, I'm a Christian, not because I have it all together. I'm a Christ follower because I desperately need him to be my savior. I desperately need him to be the Lord of my life. I don't allow him to be that perfectly. I oftentimes wrestle back control. But I need him. And rather than running from him and trying to somehow clean ourselves up so that we are fit to come back into his presence, may we just run to him in all of our filth, in all of our shame, in all of our discomfort. May we stop hiding like Adam and Eve, trying to cover over our, our nakedness. And instead, come right to the very person, the only person in history, who has shown he can do anything about our brokenness. And we come to him and allow him to work on our hearts. May we allow him to even work on our brokenness, because this is what I have found with Jesus. He will take the things that we are most ashamed of, and if, we're al- if we allow him to, he can actually redeem them so they become some of our greatest areas of ministry. Peter was one of those approachable people. Not because he was perfect, but because he was flawed. 
and yet Jesus used him. I have seen people who have struggled with alcoholism and other chemical dependency who have been turned around as God has gotten a hold of their heart and worked on them who have now come alongside and sponsored and walked with other people who are in the midst of that and were tangibly God's hands to them. I've seen people who struggled throughout their life and continued to struggle with depression and anxiety turn around and become the very people who support somebody who is processing through it and is further back in their journey. I've seen men and women, marriages, that have been rocked by infidelity turn around and after Jesus has helped them walk through and heal many of the wounds, it's not that they just go away completely, but Jesus has taken those wounds that have been inflicted on that marriage and united them in such a way that they then became a rock for another couple who's in the midst of some really difficult things. I've seen that time and again. God is not a God who turns his back on us when we screw up. Our God is a God who says, regardless of what you've done, you're still my son, you're still my daughter. I love you more than you could ever possibly fathom, and I have a purpose for you. So stop running. Stop trying to earn it. Stop disqualifying yourself. Come to me. Let me restore you. Let me reinstate you and let me put you back in the game because you're my ambassador now. And you get it. You get the depth of grace. So now go and share the good news with others. Let's pray. So God, we come as we are. Many of us are well aware of the ways that we have failed you, well aware of the ways that we have fallen short and are continuing to fall fall short. Would you do a work in us? Jesus, would you cleanse us? Holy Spirit, would you light the fire of our love for Jesus that our love would overshadow our shame? God, have your way with us. Jesus, in your holy name.